Welcome to the Command Post Podcast, powered by First Do. I'm your host, Tom Lewis, First Do's Enterprise Training Manager. I am pleased to welcome today two guests from the City of Albuquerque Fire Rescue Department. First, we have Maya Dalton-Theodore. She is the director of the newly created Behavioral Health Program for the Albuquerque Fire Rescue Department. Before coming to Albuquerque, she was the Behavioral Health Coordinator for the Fairfax County Virginia Fire and Rescue Department and the Sheriff's Department. Maya received her Bachelor's of Arts degrees in Sociology and German from Washington and Jefferson College in Washington, Pennsylvania. She received her Master's degree in Social Work from the University of Hawaii. She is an expert in training managers, employees, and peer support teams about workplace issues, substance abuse, mental health, trauma, grief, and overall employee wellness. Her wingman is Lieutenant Miguel Titman. Miguel is an 18-year veteran of the Albuquerque Fire Rescue Department and native of the city. After serving in various suppression roles, Miguel was appointed as AFR's Health and Wellness Officer, the first of its kind for the department. In 2016, Miguel led an initiative called Mind Body Fire, the first preventative behavioral health initiative that gives firefighters an added tool to build their resilience to post-traumatic stress and enhance their overall operational performance. He attended New Mexico Highlands University with a Bachelor of Science in Human Performance and Sport in 2001. He also played multiple sports, including professional basketball in Dublin, Ireland and Guadalajara, Mexico. Great to have you both here today, Miguel and Maya. Welcome to you. Let's begin today's podcast. All right, Maya and Miguel, it's so great to have you guys here on our program today. And uh, we've got a really interesting topic um, to go through, um, very deep topic on the behavioral health program in Albuquerque Fire. And so I think to start our conversation today, um, tell us a little bit about the mission of this program. What, what is the mission of Albuquerque Fire's behavioral health program? And what has it done since it, its inception so far? Who do you want to have take this one? Either one, it's fine. Go ahead, Maya. All right. Well, we are, um, thank you for having us, Tom. We really are happy to be here and uh, okay. share a little bit about a difference we're trying to make in our little corner of the world here. But um, the mission really here is something that we're still defining. Um, the overarching mission, of course, is to take care of our firefighters here at Albuquerque Fire and Rescue, um, also the family members and the retirees, and of course, our cadets. So we really want to make sure that we are building a healthy workforce, both in mind and body, um, and also to begin to look at the stigma and remove it for reaching out for help, whatever your issue may be, whether it's marital issues, um, substance abuse, depression, PTS. And also we want to look at uh, our retirees, you know, how have they been impacted? How do they have a quality of life after they retire from this very important part of their lives? Um, and also, again, the, with the cadets to show them that they can have a very healthy life here in the fire department. But again, removing the stigma and uh, being there as a support for them, either at my level, but also with peers and chaplains so that we can just foster this discussion among uh, the, the folks here at the fire department. So you also you also support the retirees. So this doesn't just end when you retire from the department. Absolutely, absolutely interesting. So let me let me, and again, you don't. It doesn't have to be crazy in depth. But let's say I'm an Albuquerque firefighter and I come to you with some suicidal ideation or just profound mm -hmm. depression. What happens next? How does that work in Albuquerque Fire? 
Well, if they reach out to a peer um, on our peer team, they can certainly talk to that peer. But what we're instilling in the peers, because we're doing a lot of training with them, is if it's beyond their scope of ability, then they would be bumping it up to um, Lieutenant Titman or to myself. And then if a clinical assessment needed to be done, certainly I would be doing it and then figuring out what's what's the next level we need to go with. And so part of my function too is to clinically triage um, what the issue is and how do we get that person safely to a level of help that will help them through this, you know, through the through whatever that suicidal ideation is. Okay, so the, por- the, the, the portal sort of is the, the front line, shall we say, frontline force here, the, the, the peer, the peers, um, the peer advisors in, in the department. And so they have some, some training that you put them through so that they can, I guess, one kind of begin to recognize it. So actively looking at their, their, their peers, but then they're also a point of contact for those seeking help. So they're kind of like the first point of contact. Would that be true? Absolutely. As is our, we also have a chaplain corps. And so not only am I doing, you know, are we providing quarterly training for them, but also we make sure that they get a good grounding with the IFF um, peer support training. And so that it's sort of a baseline for them. And then we build off of that. Nice. We've also, we've also Tom instilled in our, uh, well, um, we're teaching in all of the the officer certification classes. So we're trying to instill a level of responsibility at the officer level to really be, you know, the steward of their crew and they can also act as a peer. Um, So we're trying to give all of our peers the information as well as give our officers some of the information that way they can be that portal that you're kind of talking about. Okay. So tell me, I I come from the fire service as well and we're not always so good at, at accepting change. So as this program and it kind of will lead to the question about the impetus for the program. But as you began to roll this program out in Albuquerque Fire, how was it met by the by the the cadre? Miguel, you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah. Um, so this has been a conversation, like you know, Tom, for quite a long time. Um, and I think we're we're to the state to the level of the conversation now to where there hasn't been a huge pushback on the direction that we're taking it. On the contrary, almost, I think we've we've almost been welcomed. Um, some of the things that were um, some of the directions and some of the programs, you know, some of the old guys and the established veterans are it's 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 not um, to their liking or, it, you know, it's different. It's changed, like you said. But I think overall, uh, our department and I think the fire service in general has has really been accepting um, of this kind of direction now, because this like I said, this isn't new. Um, we've been talking about this since 2000. I got it in 2004, and I okay. really recall having the conversation back then. So uh, we've, been, we've had good response. Yeah, that's ex- that's excellent to hear. And so that kind of leads me to, um, and I know you've had some tragedies at Albuquerque Fire that that was um, the impetus for this program. But maybe share um, what got this rolling, right? Why why was it more than just you know like the like in your case you have a city, right? The employee assistant program or a person would have to deal, go to their primary care or go to, you know, through their insurance to seek help. Why, why did you want to make it part of the Albuquerque fire rescue department? Um, well, the, like I said, the conversation really started back in 2004. Um, okay. And it stemmed from the, the identification that our eternal assistance program, the EAP for the city wasn't big enough, uh, wasn't fit to address the needs of our membership, the 700-ish firefighters that we have in Upgrade Fire Rescue. Um, so at the time, the local local union, IFF Local 244, recognized that 
and started to negotiate um, money in, in the, through their contracts that was they would be able to pay a, for a membership assistance program. In this MAP, we could now facilitate um, and, and get clinicians that were, uh, we could tutor them and teach them to our, to our population. We could make sure that they were, um, had a, a firm foundation in trauma-informed care. Um, and that started back in 2004, really small with just one group of clinicians to the point now where um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty well-oiled machine. But in between there, it was never, it was never perfect. And we had a couple uh, of suicides um, and a couple really ones that kind of impacted our department really heavily because the one was a younger guy, uh, kind of well-liked. Another guy was like fresh off of uh, probation. So a couple of the suicides obviously drove the conversation to the point where um, the leadership had to, to take action um, with ballpoint pen and put it to paper and, and, uh, and dedicate money allocated towards my position and my position. Um, but the conversation has been, been going on since 2004 within really stemmed from our local, from the leadership in our local. And the, you know, the, the important thing I think is just to keep having the conversation. And then the conversation grows over time to where, um, you know, to where we're at now. So it feels like you got buy, you got buy-in early, right? It wasn't just that one or two people pushing the program. You sought buy-in from the entire organization, you know, labor, of course, the, the troops and, you know, senior leaders and such with the chiefs within the organization. So it was, it wasn't just coming from the top down, it feels like. Yeah. I don't know if buy-in is the right word off the, back in 2004. I think it was more the local kind of way of uh, saying city, you're not doing enough for us. We're going to uh, okay. do it for ourselves. Okay. And then it, it evolved to the point where, you know, back in 2004, uh, the, the fire chief that, that made this happen was a driver and he was still a leader back then, but, you know, to the point where he became the fire chief in 2018 and, um, him and his, his group of leadership within the administration are really along with the local 244 really are, are who made this happen. Nice. Yeah. And so share a little bit, um, since its inception, what you've noticed different about Albuquerque Fire. Well, um, nobody really, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Nobody really wants to know about the program and its resources until it's, you know, until it's happening to them. So um, that's kind of how it's been since 2004, uh, is a really reactive kind of program. And I think dedicating the resources like myself and Maya to be able to sit in these seats full time. We've, we've really tried to flip the conversation to be equally as proactive uh, as reactive. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we get to, we get to, we get to bring programs to our membership that, you know, that spur the conversation and as well as other conversations, you know, that, that might be new or, or interesting, you know, like uh, diet and nutrition, you know, firefighters are always into that kind of stuff, but um through the model of health and wellness, we're really trying to take a comprehensive look, uh, both proactively and then also be there for, for the times that still happen, which are uh, tragic a lot of times. So we're pretty, we've been pretty good at like the mind and the body and now we're kind of hitting the soul component. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. How do you like your role as, as being the, the, uh, health and wellness. And I know that's, this is one part of what you do in that role. Um, how much, how much time do you, you know, with all your responsibilities in that role, Miguel, uh, how much time would you say you spend in this component, the mental health, the behavioral health component? The majority, you know, um, when mm -hmm. I took over the job in January, um, 
the main focus was to shore up the peer support team and, and, and then get on, get on track with our new behavioral health director, which is Maya. Mm -hmm. uh, she came in April. So that was the direction was to, to make sure that all of our resources in the behavioral health aspects were running cleanly. Uh, and then eventually, you know, we could get to, I could get to some of the things that were, um, you know, pet projects, if you will, like the mindfulness and the, and the yoga and, and the stuff like that. But I would say the majority of what we've been doing is, is to the behavioral health world. Okay. And I want to ask you later about the mind body fire program that you have, but we'll, sure. we'll, we'll hit that in a little bit. Um, Maya, good segue over, over to Maya. So why um, in your, in your study, because um, with your education background, I'm sure you're deep into the literature and, you know, I was just looking at a study um, from uh, Philadelphia, I guess, they looked from 90, 1993 to 2014, um, about 4,400 either current or retired or separated firefighters. And they saw that, you know, about 4%, they're saying about 4%, 11 out of the 272 deaths recorded were, were suicides. And so not a small, not an insignificant number. And of course, why do you think that number both in our profession, the fire and, and EMS, um, in public safety industry, as well as in the military, there's, there seems, there feels like there's a, maybe a correlation because co uh, correlation in the sense that we're both very mission driven, um, very noble professions. And why, I guess it's a two part question. Why one, do you think that there's been an increase in the suicides and what are the contributing factors that you've seen um, that are causing this uh, problem in our community? Right. You know, that's a good question. And when you look at the um, American Psychological Association statistics, since 1999, um, there's been overall in the United States, um, we're talking civilians, firefighters, first responders, a 33% increase in um, suicides. So that's a, a pretty significant number. And I think, you know, the, the, conferences I've been to, um, the papers I've read, the literature I've read is, you know, there's a cautionary piece to this in that we do tend to, I think, in the fire service say, oh my gosh, we're having this massive increase in, in firefighter suicide. Um, but when you start doing the math on, on some of these statistics, um, it's rising just the way it's rising in the general population. Okay. So okay. sometimes, and there have been, you know, folks who have presented at conferences who have said, let's be cautious about looking at how we are interpreting these statistics. Now, I'm not downplaying suicide. Yes, absolutely. It's happening in the fire service. Um, and I think, you know, there, there it's suicide is such a loaded subject because there's such stigma about mental health to begin with and reaching out for help. But then there's that whole stigma of suicide. And so when you start to look at different organizations that are trying to track firefighter suicides in the United States, what we tend to find is that it's it's underreported, okay. um, and and you know when you look at some organizations that do uh, they look into things like anecdotal stories or they may be looking at death certificates. Sometimes it's not even identified um, that that the person did um, you know complete suicide. So it becomes almost like trying to find the needle in the haystack sometimes, um, and. 
well, I don't know that we're ever going to get an accurate number. And sometimes we also have what we call sort of the 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 slow death, you know, um, and the slow death really is people who, and this is where my passion for retirees comes in. These are the folks that wind up retiring and then they drink themselves to death, or they maybe have maybe they had a um, an injury that ended their career, so now they're on pain meds and they're combining with with alcohol, and so there's this kind of slow, you know suicide um, mm-hmm. or overeating, you know, that's another one. Um, certainly people gain a lot of weight and then you get the whole, all the cardiac issues. So it's, it's a very complex thing to look at. Um, I think what contributes also within this culture is, you know, the rise of social media. Okay. We are now seeing, and people are talking more about things on social media. 20, 30 years ago, if a firefighter completed suicide, it, might be mentioned in the newspaper, it might be anecdotally told in a fire department, but it wouldn't really be talked about the way it gets put out there on social media. So those are some of the things. So like you said, the caution in in the increase isn't necessarily a dramatic increase compared to the general population in our community. It's just we're hearing more about it. And, and exactly. social, media, social media being one of those factors. And we're normalizing it. Yeah. So that's good to, you know, use caution in interpreting, you know, what mm-hmm. we're hearing and, um, you know, a single one suicide is bad enough. And, and, and certainly, like you said, you don't want to negate what's going on. Uh, however, it's not necessarily that it's rising at, a, at an exponentially an, an exponential rate um, right. in our community. Is that, is that a true statement? That's true. And I think the military is seeing that too. And, and the thing is, if you're thinking of building a behavioral health program, you definitely want to back it with data. There's no sure, doubt. Sure. Numbers talk. Um, just again, the caution is make sure you know where your data is coming from so that you can really back that up. Um, you're going to know your own department better than anybody and what the needs are and certainly what your funding capabilities are. So in, in your experience, then what kind of as a follow up here is, is with your experience in this in this um, profession of yours um, that you're contributing to Albuquerque Fire? What are you seeing? And again, it's kind of two part here in the active, you know, firefighter. Um, what are some of the contributing factors that you're seeing to? And again, it doesn't have to be suicide. The um, challenges with their managing their mental health. What are the contributing factors, both one for active firefighters and then also for retirees? So you know, for active firefighters, um, what we tend to see is life. So this can be relationship issues, it can be marital issues, child rearing issues, elder care issues. Um, It can be a a buildup of traumatic stress over their career. There can be maybe biological um, history where there could be history of depression or even, um, you know, being bipolar in the family. That's something that firefighters often struggle with. So, um, and all, of course, addictions, you know, so there can be substance use and substance use that develops into substance use disorder. So there are all these different facets that can contribute to um, somebody beginning to think about suicide because it just becomes too much of a burden to bear. And I think for active firefighters, you know, they, they put that emotional Kevlar vest on every day because mm. they have to show up on scene and function, but taking off that vest and being vulnerable with family and friends and sometimes coworkers and their officers is tough. 
it's just tough because you're used to wearing that all the time. And I think each department has its own culture. I know moving from um, Northern Virginia to New Mexico, you know, I've, I've gotten uh, into the culture here. And certainly there's a whole different mindset out here than there is in Northern Virginia to some degree. Um, and what have you, you know, noticed there? That's interesting. What have you noticed there? What's yeah, what difference? You know, I think the history of New Mexico, I'm learning a lot more about it and it's fascinating to me. Um, there's a whole mix of, of, of you know, a history here that's been here since the 1400s. And I think back on the East Coast, oftentimes people don't really think about that that much. It's just somewhere out West, um, you know, and uh, that's not necessarily the case. It's a very rich culture here. Right. And it, um, it's, it's a lovely culture. It's been very welcoming to me, certainly. You know, and then the East Coast has its own, you know, each, of course, the Commonwealth of Virginia has its own uh, flavor and being so close to Washington, D.C., you know, the, the inside the Beltway phenomenon has its own, um, uh, you know, has its own aspect. So it's been a delight to be here. Um, and, you know, with retirees, I think right. we often talk about, to go back to your question, yeah, yeah. we often talk about the identity, right? This is all they ever do. This is what mm. they know. This is in their DNA. And so when you take that away from a firefighter, oftentimes there's a struggle for them. And um, I saw that, you know, uh, my late husband um, was forced to retire at age 40 when he had a heart attack on the fire ground. And oh, wow. this was his life. You know, this was sure. his life. And so there was a real struggle for that. And uh, he actually wound up in substance abuse treatment six months after um, retirement, you know, and, and wound up getting into recovery. And when he passed away, he had 25 years of sobriety, but, you know, it, there was, he didn't know who he was, you know, it was taken mm. away from him. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't meet him until after he retired, but we talked about that a lot. And he dealt with a lot of retirees. And I still have a lot of um, retirees back in Virginia who are friends of mine. And when we talk about that, you know, what is that next purpose that you need to find for yourself? Um, what is it that you do? And if you're working a lot of overtime and callback and, and this is all you really do, um, have you developed another side of yourself that is mm. an interest? And sometimes retirees or, or folks who are getting ready to retire have a hard time seeing that they have a transferable skill set. You know, they're not just putting the wet stuff on the red stuff. Um, you know, they're critical thinkers and um, they strategize well. And so I often have to work with them on, you know, well, let's look at some of these skills that you have and what else could you do in retirement besides being a greeter at Walmart? Um, you know, there's other things that, that, that are still you know, that you can still be a vital part of the workforce because these folks retire early, in my opinion, you know, oh, yeah. oh, 40s, yeah. 50s, right? Yep. So you have time, you know, to continue to contribute. Yeah. Um, and and so, yeah, that's what we have fun looking at. Yeah, getting them on pathways to, to develop interest mm -hmm. or skills that they might, yeah. It reminds me, I think Colin Powell, General Powell said this, that don't, you know, again, I'll paraphrase it, but something to affect is don't, let your ego be so tied up in what you do that when what you do goes away, so goes, you know, who you are. Uh, and Absolutely. again, that's a clear paraphrase, but that concept. And I think a lot of us could have learned that earlier on and probably would have had some healthier experiences um, in transitioning um, from the fire service and out of it as well. Um, so that I find that particularly interesting that you have a passion for the retirees, because I think you said it exactly right. Um, this profession, especially like law enforcement, like the military, very much lends itself into defining mm -hmm. almost exclusively who we are. Right. So very interesting. So it's good to know. It sounds like in Albuquerque fire, the suck it up buttercup uh, 
mindset is 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 gone it's uh yeah. it's or hopefully mostly gone right well, I know we, that was kind yeah. of a historically just suck it up and move on right but that's that's not good we, we've we found that that's not healthy have you seen that miguel in um in the department i, I think you're always going to have that to a degree just because of the type of um the type of people that the fire service attracts um right you know, but like I said before, I think the most important thing that we can do is just continue the conversation and the education and the outreach. Um, and at some point, someone's going to realize the importance, even though even the most stubborn, grizzled old guys will, will realize it in their own kind of special way. But I think it's always going to be kind of kind of be there um, in the in the background. But, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best to to knock that down little by little. All right. Yeah. So resilience. Uh, both of you have talked about resilience. Um, in particular, and again, I'll have you both kind of address this um, first, Miguel, um, this concept of resilience. I know your mind, body, fire program, there's, that's, a, that's a core part of that. Um, tell me about resilience and how you're helping identify any gaps in someone's resilience and you're teaching even resilience um, to your members. But what, what's this resilience all about when it comes to behavioral health? Uh, well, I think resilience in general, not even just in behavioral health, but in the fire service, it's this ability to, to be uh, like rubber, to bounce back. And our firefighters coming in are just probably probably one of the most resilient populations out there, along with, you know, military. Um, so they come in resilient. They come in, uh, they come in kind of a tip of the spear, ready to go. Um, what they don't know about themselves and about them, the job is just the, the cumulative effect that it could have over time. The little things like um, like what Maya was talking about, the life events of, of how significant that can affect uh, your nervous system, your biology, and your mental health. Um, and then I try when when we're teaching about um, resilience, I try to put it into the in the aspect of of optimal performance. So we come in uh, as firefighters, and there's this there's this athletic element to to firefighting. You have to work in teams. You have to be strong. You have to be quick. You have to work, be able to have endurance and work for a long time. Um, so we all we all know that you know we all know that, but we don't really realize the only kind of effort that we we a majority. Well, I was I shouldn't say all of us. The the majority of the effort that we put into it is based on on the physical nature of keeping our body as, as pristine and, and and ready peak condition. And not not all of us are are good out of it, but a lot most of us are. Um, but we kind of neglect the concept of of integrating the mindfulness into that, into in the spiritual spirituality into that, in the diet into that. Um, some of us are better than, than others, but I think uh, some of the things that we want to teach in Mind Body Fire is just having a more comprehensive attitude towards your biology, towards your neurobiology, uh, your nervous system, which is controlling everything. Um, that way, you can you can better identify in yourself. It's really it's really about looking in the mirror. At some point in your career, it's going to happen, whether it's five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years in, something's going to occur to where you're going to have to look at yourself and, and, and be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not what, what I once was. I can't perform the same way um, and, and figure out what it is that you can do to better that or, or fix that or whatever the case may be. Uh, so I think that's the biggest thing that we can, we can kind of teach in our young firefighters and our old ones is just having that um, ability to look at yourself and identify when it might be, um, when it might be your turn, your time, your turn to, to, to do something, uh, proactive about your, your, your neurobiology and your, your mental health, your mental health and your, you know, behavioral health, all of it. So neurobiology, you're going to need to stay tuned in uh, early <laughs> next year. We're having 
uh, Dr. Kristen Willemeyer. Um, okay. She has a book called Biohack Your Brain. And just what you're talking about, she's going to share some practical ways of doing just that. So um, yeah. it's going to tie in nicely with uh, today's podcast for sure. Um, Maya, yeah. resilience, um, from your perspective, right? Resilience, what's, what is that again all about? And then it can describe that in, in your role um, in, in what you see it as. And then elaborate a little bit on how you help, um, how you're helping members of the department um, improve their overall resilience? Well, I think Miguel touched on it. You know, it's the resiliency. People don't pick this career. Um, Not everybody can do this job. So you've got to have individuals that are coming into this who do have a certain amount of resiliency. Um, And the resiliency really is about, as Miguel said, the ability to bounce back. You know, it's that sort of the bamboo bending in the wind as as opposed to like an oak tree breaking, you know, um, in the wind or in a windstorm. Um, But for me, it also goes beyond just the resiliency piece. It's also post-traumatic growth. And that's a concept that um, is fairly new. um, And it talks about you know, growing through the trauma that you've experienced and coming out the other end of it and being maybe even a different person and having a different perspective in life. And so if we can not only build on the resiliency of somebody who can come back and, and, and put, the, put the experience in perspective, but somebody who's also come out the other end of it. And I think the important piece that I always talk about is, um, you know, to officers, talk to your people about your own stories, you know, your own experiences and how model for them, how you got through that. And it's not, and in a healthy way, you know, what did you do that got you through that? Why are you still continuing to do the job? And I'll be honest with you, some of the debriefings we've done after some of our, you know, events that we've had here, the most fruitful debriefings we've had are, are when officers in the group setting will talk to the younger guys on the shift and say, don't turn out like us, you know, talk about this because we've really been affected and we're towards the end of our career, but make, you know, do it differently than we did. And it's really very enriching because it really does model for the younger folks that, um, you know, they can be, they need to be resilient, certainly, and they need to take good care of themselves. Um, but that they can come out of a traumatic event at the other end of it and grow, you know, and sometimes become better officers themselves in their career. Interesting. And it, that courage to communicate, we we're, we tend to be a kind of a brave community, um, courageous in the event of stressful events, but this calls for a whole different kind of courage. It sounds like, and then being able what you, you, you expressed about the officer with the younger um, newer firefighters that that takes courage right and and it does. how do you how are you it kind of leads me to think and, and obviously we could spend a lot of time into the into the weeds here in the mm-hmm. details but what are some of the some of the things you, you you're teaching and communicating to these officers so that they have that they can take that risk have that courage to communicate in these type of events um, kind of share a little bit about sure. that what are some of the key elements that you're teaching them sure so we you know we talk about behavioral health in general and then we teach them about sort of what the symptoms are um, what some of the contributing factors are we talk about things like sleep deprivation which is huge in the fire service and how that contributes to certainly you know um, poor mental health 
and how they can um, you know, try to mitigate some of that. But we also give them scenarios and we let them uh, sort of role play their way through a situation because sometimes those conversations are the hardest ones to have because you're right, it does take a lot of courage to be a firefighter and it takes a different kind of a courage to be vulnerable. You know, it's that vulnerability that, you know, supermen aren't supposed to be vulnerable. Yeah. And it's that. not a sign of weakness, right? That that stigma there of the sign of weakness. Um, and, you know, we give them information. I mean, there's there's so many good organizations. And I think we're, we're blessed in the fire service because, you know, we have, um, you know, NFPA standards. We've got the IAFF. We've got the NFFF. Um, you know, the National Volunteer Fire Council has put out some good information. And, you know, the International Association of Fire Chiefs. So, you know, the, the discussion is going on. And that's what we try to share with these officers is, is that there are large organizations out there that are talking about this, you know, sure. go to the conferences, um, you know, network. And, and that I think allows for the discussion then to continue for them. And also I try um, to get to know these officers on a personal basis. I know with COVID we're a little bit more restricted, but certainly, you know, part of it is doing ride-alongs with battalion chiefs, um, you know, going to the stations, uh, not only just for an informal meet and greet, but sometimes I'll go eat breakfast or dinner or whatever, just to, you know, get that conversation going and make them more comfortable when they need to pick up the phone and call me about a situation. And sometimes they're just running something past me, which is fine. Uh, but sometimes there we are really are reaching out for themselves or for someone who's working under them. So getting a little into the practical side a little bit, what are some of the the things, and I know we've, we've heard some of this, but what are some of the key things that when you're, when you're coaching and, 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 and helping officers and firefighters you know, in general, but certainly those officers that are looking out for their crews, um, the signs, what are some of the signs that you instruct them to be alert for? Because some of them can be very subtle. Some can be very overt, you know, lateness, you know, bleary eyed, you know, things like that coming to work. But what are, what are some of the key things that you teach and again, I'm, I'm coming at it from an officer perspective so that they can be better attuned to their troops, their crews. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start, there's, you, there's, it is subtle. You're right. Absolutely. And so there are small things that can start where they might be interacting with um, the rest of the shift differently. They may okay. be more withdrawn or they may be uh, having some angry outbursts. Um, they could be having, they could be talking about having more trouble sleeping, um, even on their off days. Um, you may notice that their performance may be declining, that they could be distracted in some okay. way. Okay. Um, that they're not necessarily following orders or they're getting more forgetful about stuff or they can't remember the names for very simple things. And that's often a a pretty good sign of stress that's going on. Um, There may be, and, you know, dark humor is a part of the fire service. I mean, I think that's a, that's a normal part of, of, of this line of work. I think it's a coping mechanism that, that you all use, right? It's, it is what it is. But I think when somebody really starts to get very negative um, mm. and there's a personality change that you see in them, then I would be, you know, a little bit more concerned. Um, and again, what I advise them, then this came out of my days as an EAP when I was at Amtrak, is that I used to always tell managers, you know, you are not necessarily an armchair therapist, but your job as the manager is to make sure that the team is getting the product done. 
um, whether it's, you know, running a train or putting out a fire or responding to a medical call appropriately and making the right medical decisions. Um, so that's really your function. And if, if this one individual's behavior is beginning to work against the shift and is affecting the morale of the shift or they're not communicating well, then you as a manager of people have that obligation to say, you know what, we're not getting the mission done here. Um, mm. And so how can we help you so that we can make this team work better? Yeah. Focus on the mission, not the person. Exactly. exactly. So, and, and it's interesting that, cause it made me think of an analogy, like arm, arm, armchair therapists. We're, we're, we're not that we're, we're really what we do for our own people is not unlike what we do for our citizens, right? You are, you know, in a motor vehicle collision and you need to get to a level one trauma center. Well, we're, we're not going to be able to do the surgery. We're going to get you right. to the surgeon. Right. We're not going to be able to solve the mental health challenges you're having. We're going to get you through you and Miguel mm -hmm. to the, to the support, to the professionals that will help you mm -hmm. mitigate the crisis or mitigate the, the stressors. Right. And so yeah. um, I think that's to me, if I'm listening to this, you know, and my department doesn't have a program, those, what you just explained in the last couple of minutes, I think are, are immensely helpful um, to those officers, to those firefighters, because it, that's a really great thing to focus on is the mission, right? Is if, if your ability to serve the community and, and fulfill the mission is deteriorating, why is it deteriorating? And, you know, it's not just looking at, okay, you're acting funny. It's what's, you know, it, it prompts you to, to, to go deeper, right? To go deeper. Right. And I think too, you know, there's a, um, a scientist by the name of Thomas Joyner, and he gets quoted quite a bit here in the fire service around suicidality. He's done a lot of studies on suicidality. And there's three things that he talks about too, that I think officers need to be aware of, you know, or even friends of somebody who maybe has um, retired is that three things need to be there. And, and one of them is a uh, feeling of um, burdensomeness. So if I'm a burden on my coworkers or I'm a burden on my family because I may have received an injury. Um, there's also the feeling of thwarted belongingness, meaning they may have been separated from the fire service or they um, have retired now um, or they're sick and they can't get back because of an injury, that kind of thing. And then the third factor is the means to uh, complete suicide. You know, those, so again, most firefighters in this country are white males of a certain age and many firefighters obviously have um, weapons at home. Sure. So you add that lethality to it. And if you have those three things there, that can, again, be something that an officer needs to be aware of, you know, um, that, you know, John is not going to fade away into the sunset quietly. Um, you know, he's in pain and he may not be happy about being separated from the fire service. Um, and so how do you look out for that person? Or he's not happy being on injury leave because maybe the injury is not healing fast enough. And he's afraid now that he may not, he or she may not be able to get back um, in time. You know, they, they may be separated from the department if the injury doesn't heal right. So those are those kind of concerns that, that you have to look at too. So it sounds like you just described, you know, Miguel knows about the fire triangle. Well, it sounds like those three th items are like the <laughs> fire behavioral health triangle and you yeah. fix or remove one of those then the risk goes down, right? The risk for self self injury goes down. Um, interesting. So as, as we come to a, cl a close, what there's, there's going to be listeners that don't work for a city as progressive 
and is well-funded. And again, maybe Miguel might argue, any of us would argue with our fire departments how well-funded, but certainly you're funded well enough to afford a valuable program such as this. What would you say, and, and this is for both of you, what would you say to departments that, I don't work for an Albuquerque, I don't work for Fairfax, I don't work for Phoenix, um, Tucson, any of the bigger cities that could potentially afford something like this, but they see value in what this has to offer. What can they do locally to improve the behavioral health and the mental wellness of their, their firefighters? I guess you want me to start, Maya? Sure, um, go ahead. The, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that could benefit any department, big or small, is just to continue having the conversation. And not only in having the conversation, but to have the conversation with, the, um, with trying to empower the leaders. And, and usually it's the officers, but it's not only the officers that are the leaders of your department. Sometimes it's the driver in the station sure. or the firefighter. Um, but empower your leaders to, to know some of the things we just talked about and then also have the resources to, like you said, we're not going to go have surgery, but we're going to direct you to where, to where the possible resources are. So education is a huge part. And I think any, any department, big or small, um, can, can at least, you know, start in that, that direction of the education component, teaching their officers, uh, teaching their, their people. And, and what, you know, I'm going to end with this because I think this is it, it goes back to the firefighters of yesteryear that tell me stories about before there was, you know, when there was one TV, there was one central TV and there wasn't a TV in every room and a TV in the workout room and a TV in the kitchen and everybody had TVs in the bunk rooms. And now it's this. Everybody's got this and they're sitting there staring at it while they're watching TV or while they're eating dinner with each other. And I think it's just bringing back that that most important element of firefighter behavioral health in the fire service, which is the day room, you know, the, the dining room table, dinner room, the dinner table, where you have these conversations, um, where you talk about a traumatic call afterwards, where you talk about a critical fire, what went well, what went wrong. When, when fire officers and fire and, and, and fellow firefighters know uh, because of the conversations they're happen, having, they know when someone's not right. They know when someone's not off and they can identify uh, when the need is there to, to step in and, and, and offer some help. I like that, Miguel. It sounds like uh, it probably like in my house, right? Um, and I get I'll get chastised now and then, but it's uh, uh, no cell rooms or no cell phones at the day room or dinner table, um, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so yep. have that have that break bread without the electronic distraction. Yeah, it's easy to do it in your own home. Sometimes it's more difficult to do it in the firehouse when you're a captain of 10 other firefighters. Sure. The station that came from, that's, it was pretty difficult to do. I'm sure, I'm sure. But again, it's it comes back to that social that social bonding yeah. um, that's so important that can't be replaced with just electronic social media, just as one one component, it sounds like is what you're saying. Absolutely. Maya. Um, well, I'll tell you, um, I think... I, one of the things I learned when I first came to work for Fairfax and I went to one of the big conferences, I think it was the IFF conference, was I was amazed at the different sizes of departments in this industry. You know, you have everything from FDNY with four counseling units for, I don't know how many thousands of um, firefighters. And then you had these, you know, little volunteer fire services that could barely you know, put running coats on people or, or get them the equipment that they needed to function, to be responsive to their community. And so I was, um, I think a little taken aback by the 
the, the variety of funding um, that that fire departments have and the whole difference between career versus volunteer and in that whole dynamic. Um, so, you know, it has been very rewarding for me personally and professionally that as we in Northern Virginia began to really reach out to each other in behavioral health and the fire service to be able to advise other fire departments about, you know, hey, um, this is what's working for us. You know, how can we help with you and, 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 and communicating with each other? You know, that regional communication is so important. And we were able to put on three conferences, you know, um, while I was there for regionally, basically on behavioral health. And it got fire departments talking to each other at the conference. And so it, it started to germinate some ideas. If a fire department can't afford to, you know, to, to create a, a a little department like this, you know, and, and, and these kind of positions, I think it's to use your resources, you know, use your bigger departments that are around you, contact your bigger departments that may have resources, um, you know, maybe pull together and, and see, you know, some departments may have an external EAP, some may not, um, you know, may not have clinicians, especially the more rural fire departments. It's a real challenge to get uh, clinicians there to be able to help them. So, you know, definitely don't don't be afraid to reach out. Um, and and you know, departments that have gone through this, some departments have learned from their mistakes. You know, and said these are the things not to do, or these are the things that are working for us. There are people out there in this industry that are it's working. You know, and um, and certainly you know we'd be happy to be a resource. And I know there's other fire departments that I know of who have behavioral health programs where they would be resources, and they've been resources to me. Great big help to me. So. Um, just don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah, you pay it forward. Now that sounds Absolutely. good. If we have automatic and mutual aid for responding to incidents, why Absolutely. not mutual and automatic aid with behavioral health, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so one more question came to mind here, and I think it's worth um, worth asking is, since you started this program, Miguel and Maya, what results have you seen? You know, what, what's a, in the short time it's been in existence, uh, what results have you started to see? A couple of things on my side. Um, when I first came into the position, we, we, we initiated a couple of things right, right off the bat. One was we created a tab in our EPCR, EPCR which is our report writing system for the fire officers uh, to empower them. It's a yes or no question. Does this call warrant a peer support follow-up? Uh, they have to click yes or no um, to finish the report. So it's generated a conversation. But for the first two months, uh, everybody click no or everybody clicked yes, whether it was to mess with me or whether it was to uh, to generate the conversation. Because what would happen is I would get a report every single morning of all the yeses and I would make a phone call and I'd call them and I'd be like, hey, uh, John, you know, you clicked yes, what's going on? Just, to, you know, and if they did it on accident, which was 95% of the time, then we, we we talked about the tab, we talked about this function, we talked about how it empowered uh, them as officers to, you know, have some kind of resource if they needed it. Um, which was, you know, a huge benefit because it created that conversation throughout all of our officers, pretty much within our entire department. The second thing that we did is we identified um, and we kind of took this off of a couple of the different departments model um, calls that we were going to have. Uh, I wouldn't say mandatory, but we were going to have a response, a critical incident stress management or debriefing response after 
potentially traumatic events, PTEs or critically critical incidents, however you want right. to call them. So after the death of a child or death of a mm. firefighter or, or suicide, we were going to have a, a response that was going to include our behavioral health director and somebody from the peer team or somebody from the chaplain or all three, at least two, um, to go have a conversation in a semi-structured, not completely structured, but if, you, if you've ever taken the, the CISM class, there's a kind of a technique to it. Um, and that kind of generated a conversation because we had a lot of them, <laughs> to be honest, in the past uh, almost a year now, in nine, 10 months. So we've had enough of them to where there's been a conversation about the whole process. Because um, before we would have our MAP providers on call, um, and then the battalion chief would recognize the the uh, critical nature of the call and then either call or not. And if you leave it up to firefighters, the majority of the times they're going to say, no, we're good, right? We're good. Mm -hmm. We don't need the help. But um, this kind of puts a, a structured way of our response to those critical, potentially traumatic incidents. Um, and it's really created a conversation, which is, I think, given us momentum and it's, it's given us a lot of progress. That's a, that's fantastic. Yeah. Maya, anything you'd like to add from your perspective? Yeah. You know, I think it's also exposure, certainly, you know, going out into those fire stations and meeting people. And, um, and the call volume has been increasing. I didn't think it was going to increase, you know, dramatically in the beginning. And it, and it didn't for me, you know, because people have to learn who you are and do, can I trust this woman and who is she and all that. So, um, you know, certainly every month that goes by that I've been here, you know, the call volume to me is increasing. Um, and so, again, I think that's one of the beauties of having somebody who's sort of embedded in this population is I can go out into the stations. I can do that. And um, if you can get providers who are working with you on the outside, if you could get them to, you know, come to the station, you know, come see what life in a station is like, that exposure, I think, helps where people then begin to see that that clinicians okay you know and um and then the clinician is a little bit more comfortable i think with the culture also if they're not terrifically familiar so we're definitely seeing an increase and i think the more i can get out there to stations the more i can educate and hold classes um you know being here at headquarters has been great in at the academy because i you know wander through the building and i talk to people and have little conversations and all of a sudden you get kind of pulled aside like hey can i talk to you about this you know which is great that's what i want um and uh hopefully we're setting we are going to set up a, a second clinical office um which is away from headquarters so for me to meet with firefighters and we're looking forward to um opening that up probably in the next month or so so you know we'll get there you're definitely getting there well thank you for letting me ask you one more question um that was um, exceptional. Um, thank you both. And uh, we, we look forward to our paths crossing soon. Great. Thanks so much, Chief. Appreciate it very much. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.